I'm not going to ask you what it is, but has anybody given up anything for Lent? I'm not going to ask you because I don't, you know, um, <laughs> some of you might have uh, given up coffee or, or sweets, chocolate, cake, chocolate cake or chocolate or cake. Uh, it's awfully when that person in work then brings in that lovely cake they made. Fizzy drinks, social media, f- uh, Facebook or Instagram. Uh, there's somebody in our house who claims to have given up Instagram but they're not doing a great job at it. Um, I don't, I'm not saying who it is. Um, let's call her Wacky. Um, maybe you've given up talking about the coronavirus. Uh, it's only when you try to give up something that you fully realize how ingrained it is in your life, isn't it? I mean, you think you're managing something, you think it's not an addiction, it's not a habit, and then you try to give it up, and you realize it's actually a, a compulsion, it's, it's like an addiction. Today I'm going to talk about what I think is the greatest addiction among humanity. And it's not alcohol or cigarettes or drugs or food or gambling or shopping or eating or social media. The greatest addiction among humans is this, approval addiction. The disease to please. The desire we have for others to like us, to say nice things about us, to approve of us, to think highly of us, to avoid rejection at all costs. So much of our lives is spent trying to keep people happy. And in many cases, it's good. We want kids to keep their parents happy as parents We want that. We want to please our spouses. We want to um, please our friends. We want to, 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 um, there's not, and we all need some sense of approval in life. And so there's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's, there's something very human about that. And, and I don't want people to go away from today thinking, oh, I can be rude and obnoxious so that you can pat yourself on the back and say, oh, at least I'm not a people pleaser. No, you're just rude and obnoxious um, if you do that. But the problem is this, when we become so concerned with what other people think and getting their approval, that that becomes the driving force for our entire lives. What if making somebody else happy makes you miserable? What if running after them runs you into the ground? What if trying to win their approval leads to you being exploited, manipulated, and even abused by somebody else? What if pleasing other people becomes more important to your eye than pleasing God? Like I say, I'm picking up in Matthew 11 from where we left off last week. These are verses, certain verses in Scripture that you read and you don't really understand, so you sort of skim over them. Uh, And and these are those sort of verses. I've read them in the Gospels many times, and I've never really understood uh, what they mean. But that's what we're going to look at this morning. Matthew 11, verses 16 to 19. Jesus is saying this. He says, To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus looks at the people in front of him, especially the religious leaders of his day. And he, he compares them to children playing in the marketplace. In those days, 
everything would take place in the marketplace. It was maybe a square in town. It was a big open space. And while the parents were bartering and buying things, all the kids would need to be occupied. So they would all go over to one side and they would play games. And, and sometimes those games involved role-playing. You know the way kids will do today? They'll, they'll role-play adult games. Like when Elijah was really young, they used to play families and there'd be a mommy and a daddy and, and, and kids and, or, or cops and robbers or, or something like that. You know, that, that the kids would role-play. And two of the most popular games that the kids would play would be weddings and funerals, which to us might seem a little bit bizarre, but in those days, they didn't have Christmas or Easter, funny enough, because Jesus was walking the earth, and so they didn't make a big fuss about birthdays. They didn't have New Year's Eve, and so the times when the biggest celebrations, the biggest gatherings of people, the biggest parties, the biggest uh, noise was made, the biggest fuss, the biggest processions in town were when there were weddings and when there were funerals. And so the kids would act this out. Little Mary might put on a nice dress. And the kids might, you know, march through the square. And one might be playing a little whistle or a little pipe. And and they would be calling out to all the other kids, come and play with us. Come and join the wedding. And there was this pressure to come and be part of the game. And if you didn't do it, you were maybe ostracized or you were criticized or you were um, called names. So that was the wedding game. And then the, the, later on in the day, what, you know, they may go home and, the, you know, they may put on dark clothes or they may, you know, like if they're torn clothes, they, they may say, right, we're now going to play funerals, which is a little bit morbid for, for kids to play. Um, you know, like if the kids were walking through, you know, Lurgan carrying a little coffin, uh, we're playing funerals, mommy and daddy, that, you'd be slightly concerned. You'd maybe bring them to a counsellor. Um, but that's what they played. And they would sing a dirge. They would sing an old funeral song. And and they would, you know, some of you will have seen those Middle Eastern funerals where they wail and they, they hit themselves sometimes. The kids would do that and they would, again, try to get the other kids to join in. And if you didn't join in, you were called names. And Jesus says to the people around him, he says, you're just like those kids. You're trying to get me to do what you want me to do. But here's what he says. I'm not going to dance to your tune. I won't dance to your tune. They want Jesus to live up to their expectations. We talked about expectations last week. They want Jesus to meet what they think he should be like, to act the way he thinks, to speak the way he thinks, to be with the people that he thinks he should associate with, to do what they want him to do. And Jesus is saying, you're like a bunch of kids trying to get your own way. Kids are like that, aren't they? Two-year-olds. Like the world revolves around them. It's all about them. Everything is about them. And it doesn't, I said two-year-olds, seven-year-olds, 27-year-olds. No, like, like really, I, you know, we, we have a little boy, Elegy, seven. And he, like, he's, he's, not, he's a wonderful kid, but everything revolves around him. You know, like we were going to the Fat Gherkin for lunch yesterday. I don't want to go to the boy roof of the Fat. And yeah, get in the car. Like, oh, okay, Elijah, since you don't want to go, we'll sit at home. Like, that's what he's kind of expecting. Not a chance. But kids think the world revolves around them and that everybody should do what they want. 
unfortunately, some of us don't grow out of that. Uh, maybe you know people who, as long as you're doing what they want to do, they're fine. But as soon as you don't do what they want, they throw a hissy fit. That you always end up going where they want to go, even if you don't really want to go there. You, do you have any friends that you spend all day talking to them about them and their problems, and after two hours you go home and you realize they haven't asked you one single question about yourself? Do you have any friends that you say the slightest thing that contradicts them? In any way, you disagree with them, and it's World War III, and they don't speak to you for three months. That you're always walking in eggshells around them for doing, fear of doing something they don't approve of. If you know somebody like that, they're a lot of fun to hang around with. Um, there's a lot of people like that. I guarantee you everybody in this church can think of somebody who fits that description. Some of you are thinking about people in this church who fit that description. <laughs> but it's, they expect you to dance to, 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 to their tune that your greatest goal in life should be to make, make them happy and to meet their needs because you were put in the universe to meet their needs. But look at what Jesus says next. He says, that's what the people around him are like. Look at what he says he's next. He says, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he's a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What Jesus is saying is the problem with trying to please people is that you will never please them. You simply can't do it. You will never make them happy. He talks about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was, he's a bit of a crazy character. We talked a bit about him last week. He was, uh, he was a bit strange, a bit out there. He was Jesus' crazy cousin, and he lived in the desert. He lived in the wilderness. He, he wasn't a big fan of people. So this whole no hugging, no handshake thing, he would have been fine with that, okay? John the Baptist wasn't a big fan of being around people. He went and lived in the wilderness. He dressed funny in animal skins. He ate locusts and wild honey, and his message was turn or burn, repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. He lived this very strict, religious, ascetic lifestyle. He didn't drink alcohol. He was very careful he spent time. He was a very strict ascetic person. And, and, and the religious leaders looked at him and said, he's crazy. He's nuts. He's got a demon. He's possessed. He's a looper. He's absolutely mad. And then Jesus says, the son of man, that's the term he used, the earthly term to describe himself in Matthew's gospel. He says, the son of man comes and he eats and drinks. He goes to parties he goes to weddings. He hangs out with people. He, he, he spends time with tax collectors and sinners. He, he's a social person. He's always in among people, healing them. And that's what, what do you say about him? You don't say he's got a demon. You say he's an alco. You say he's a party animal. He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. At least the second part was right. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But they absolutely blew out of proportion the other stuff because he wasn't a glutton and he wasn't a drunkard. But because he didn't, you know, that's what people do. When you don't meet their expectations, they, they, they multiply and they exaggerate what you do to make you look extra bad in front of others. And Jesus didn't dance to their tune either. So Jesus, or John was too strict, and Jesus is too lax, and they criticized him too. So Jesus is saying this, the problem with living your life 
to please other people is that you will never please everyone. No matter what you do, there will always be people who will criticize and won't like it. And that's true. We know that. We all have different tastes. We're fickle. We're unique. What you like, I won't like. And what I like, you won't like. Some of you liked some of those songs. Some of you like different songs. That's okay. Some of you like a certain volume of, of music. Some of you like it louder. Some of you like it quieter. That's okay. Some of you like short sermons. You go to other churches. That's okay. <laughs> you can't please all of the people all of the time. You can please all of the people some of the time and some of the people all of the time, but you can't please all of the people all of the time. Even God can't please everyone. You know, think about the Olympics or the World Cup final. Millions of people praying for their team to win. One side's going to be disappointed. God cannot please everyone. And so if you're one of those people who's a people pleaser, you're overly concerned with what people think about you, then you're going to live a very miserable, sad, exhausted, constantly worried life that you aren't living up to others' expectations. You simply can't do it. don't know if you've ever heard of Aesop's fables. But there's, uh, Aesop tells a fable about how difficult it is to keep everyone happy. This is the story. Man and his son were once going with their donkey to market. As they were walking along by its side, a country man passed them and said, you fools, what else is a donkey for except to ride upon? So the man put the boy on the donkey and they went on their way. But soon they passed a group of men, one of whom said, see that lazy youngster. He lets his father walk while he rides the donkey. So the man ordered his son to get off, even though he wasn't tired, and he got on the donkey himself. But they hadn't gone far before they passed two women, one of whom said to the other, shame on that lazy lout to let his poor son trudge along while he's on the donkey. Well, the man didn't know what to do. But at last he took the boy up before him on the donkey. By this time they'd come to town and passers-by began to jeer and point at them. The man stopped and asked, what are you scoffing at? And the man said, aren't you ashamed of yourself for overloading that poor donkey with you and your hulking son? The man and the boy got off and they tried to think what to do. And they thought and thought until at last they cut down a pole, tied the donkey's feet to it, raised the pole, and they carried the donkey on their shoulders. They went along amidst the laughter of all who met them until they came to the market bridge when the donkey got one of his feet loose, kicked out, and caused the boy to drop his end of the pole. In the struggle, the donkey fell over the bridge and drowned. That will teach you, an old man said, who had followed them, please all and you will please none. Are you a people pleaser? Is any of this sounding familiar? Does this talk apply to any of you at all? I want to give four characteristics of a people pleaser, and then I want to think about three points really quickly of how we can overcome this disease to please. Four characteristics of a people pleaser. Number one is this. People pleasers feel a huge fear of rejection. Fear is really at the root of people-pleasing. Fear of rejection. Fear of being disapproved of. Fear of people talking badly about you. Fear of not being liked. Fear of failing in front of others. Fear of people. And that fear can cause us to do things that we wouldn't normally do because that fear can actually become stronger than our fear of God. We see this in Scripture in 1 Samuel 15. 
Saul and the Israelites are going out to fight the Amalekites, and God gives him one very clear instruction. He says to him, when you win this battle, I want you to destroy absolutely everything. I want you to leave nothing alive. And Saul and the Israelites go out and they defeat the Amalekites. But he, does, he, does, he keeps two things alive. He keeps the, uh, the king alive, the Amalekite king, and he keeps the best of the livestock alive. And God confronts him uh, through the prophet Samuel. Look at verses 13 and 14. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what then is the bleating of sheep in my ears? And what's the lowing of cattle that I hear? So Saul tries to be all spiritual and say, the Lord bless you. I've done what God says. And Samuel says, well, why can I hear sheep and, and cattle then? And then verse 24, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. Look at what he says. I was afraid of the people. And so I gave in to them. I was afraid of the people. He's the king. He's the leader. He's the anointed one. He's the ruler. But he's afraid of the people. And so he gave in to them. And we saw this throughout Saul's life. And because of that, he ends up losing the kingship. You see, there's a lot at stake here. There's your destiny at stake sometimes. It's not some casual thing. It's not some trifle thing. It's an important thing. That when you are more concerned with what people think than with what God thinks, you can completely miss your purpose in life. Because you're constantly thinking, if I do what God wants me to do, what will my work colleagues think? What will my family think? What will my peers think? Especially in this age of political correctness. I cannot stand political correctness. I'm not for being rude and obnoxious, but I cannot stand this era where everybody, I've talked about it before, everybody's offended by everything. And that everybody has to be politically correct about everything. In this age of tolerance, where people are tolerant of any view or any opinion or any religion except biblical Christianity. And there is this huge pressure to conform. There's this huge pressure to just to go along with what everybody else says, to go along with what everyone else thinks, just to keep your head down, just to say what everyone else is saying, to fit in, to do what everyone else is doing. There's this huge pressure because you don't want to be rejected. There's this huge fear of being ostracized, of being called a bigot, of being called a racist, of being called whatever they call you. All, like, like, all you have to do is disagree with someone and they'll label you a Nazi, they'll label you right-wing, they'll label you anything these days. And there's this huge, intense pressure to conform. And as a church, we cannot do that. We cannot give in to the spirit. Like I said, it's not about being obnoxious. It's not about being rude. But it is about standing on the Word of God. And it's saying, you might not disagree with, or you might not agree with me. That's okay. We are allowed to disagree. But this is what I believe the Bible teaches, and this is what I am standing on. The truth is, nobody likes to be rejected. We all like to be liked. We do. We like it when people like us. We want people to like us. But sometimes in trying to make people like us, we end up losing ourselves, and we end up missing who God created us to be. That's number one. Number two, people pleasers take criticism very personally. And that makes sense. 
If your greatest desire is for approval and to have people like you and people say good things about you, when they say bad things about you, when they criticize you, you take it intensely personally. You become hypersensitive to the smallest bit of criticism. Some people go into a fit of rage, I've seen that happen, where the smallest little slight against them and they completely throw all the toys out of the pram and go completely mad and then other people fall into the depths of depression and despair because anybody criticized them or gave them a negative comment. When someone behaves that way, it's a sign that they're over-consumed with what people think about them. Again, we see this in the life of Saul. After David kills Goliath, they're coming back into town with the troops. And the women come out, uh, and, and they danced and they sang the tambourines, for, uh, verses, chapter 18, verses 69. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David has tens of thousands. And look at what it says. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The number one hit is Saul's a good fighter, but David's even better. And Saul the king, because he's insecure, because he's a people pleaser, because he's an approval addict, he can't stand it. The thing I was thinking about this, actually, I've never thought about this. Was it actually true? Had David killed tens of thousands? No. He had killed one. Saul had killed thousands. Saul had led the army into battle many times. That bit was true. The bit about David was exaggeration. David had only killed Goliath. And yet, because Saul is such an approval addict, he can't stand back rationally and think, is what they're singing true? Or are they just caught up in emotion and the hype of the moment? He takes it incredibly personally. And it says from that moment he kept a jealous eye on David. More than that, the next day he ends up throwing a spear at David. He does this a number of times. In the end, he ends up spending the next 10 years of his life pursuing David, trying to kill him, becoming a crazy man, all because of a song, all because of a criticism. None of us likes criticism. Criticism is a bit like a paper cut. You don't bleed much, but it stings. Isn't that right? Like, nobody can see it, but it stings. It hurts. Like, you never walk. I hope I meet somebody really critical today. Like, it gets us all, doesn't it? Like, no matter who we are. Like 10 people could come up to me and tell me that, you know, something positive after the sermon and one person could come up and say something negative. And the one person is that person I'll think about for the rest of the day. It's the one person whose opinion will go round your head for the rest of the day. And that will shape how you view yourself and how you view what you've done. We've all done that. You know, like, like we're all the same. We don't like to be criticized. You know, there's a story about a little boy who went up to his minister after church and said, when I grow up, I'm going to give you money. And the minister said, oh, that's lovely, son. Why are you going to give me money? And he said, because my daddy was saying, you're the poorest preacher we've ever heard. Like, you've got to have a thick skin when you're doing this. Sadly, too many ministers are people pleasers. We get into this because we want to care about people. But what can happen is that we become more concerned 
with what people think than with what God thinks. We become more concerned with keeping people happy, keeping the seats filled, keeping people encouraging us that we forget that ultimately we're answerable to God. Morris Elliott, who was my first rector that I worked under in Lurgan, in his first sermon in Shankill Parish, Parish, he stood up and said this, I will be your servant, but you will never be my master. I thought that was good. I can see you all think it's fantastic. Um, <laughs> but it's true, because I have only one master, and so have you. And if I spend my life, t- I mean, we have a between the two services, we have somewhere around 300 people. Imagine if I tried to please 300 people. Like, it's impossible. So what I have to do is I have to go, God, what does your word say? Where do I think you're leading us? And that's the direction I have to go. Some people will like it. Some won't. That's okay. I cannot lie awake at night, and I don't. Okay? Um, Number three. People pleasers find it difficult to express their true feelings. They're afraid to say what they think because they're afraid that others might not agree with them. And so they're always waiting to say, well, what do, what do you think about that? And what way is the wind blowing? And what's popular opinion like? We, saw it, we see it with things like Brexit, don't we? And Trump, you know, they do all these polls before the election. And everybody's anti-Trump or anti-Brexit. And then they go under the little polling booth when nobody's looking. And they vote the opposite way. Why? Because they're afraid to let people know because of the amount of pressure there is to conform. As Christians, our goal is not to be politically correct, but to be prophetically direct. To live according to the word of God. It is not to please people, but to please God. In John 12, it says this. At the same time, many even among the leaders. So this is the religious leaders. This is the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They believed in him. They believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they'd be put out of the synagogue. Why? For they loved human praise more than praise from God. What people thought was more important than what God thought. Someone was telling me about a friend of theirs who was a football referee. And in one game, he sent somebody off. And all the parents started booing. So he brought him back on again. And then the other side's parents started booing. So he sent him off again in the same football match. That's the problem with trying to please people. You can't do it. You're paralyzed by indecision. You're always worried that you're offending somebody. You're living in fear. And you lose who you really are. You give away your sense of of identity and uniqueness, and you live bland and beige. And God's desire is not that you're bland and beige, even though I am wearing beige today. Number four, people pleasers find it hard to say no. People pleasers find it hard to say no. They say yes when they really mean no. They agree to do something, then they go home and they they get mad and frustrated at themselves because they didn't want to do it. We see this with Pilate when it comes to the crucifixion of Jesus. A number of times, Pilate says this, I have examined him and have found no basis for your charges against him. It says this, wanting to release Jesus Pilate appealed to them again. And again he says this, I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. 
But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. That's the problem today. Those who shout the loudest, the mob mentality prevails, and everybody else cowers in fear. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. People pleasers do things they don't want to do because they don't like conflict. Will you babysit for me tonight? Yes, no problem. Already had all their plans. Don't know how to get out of that now. Will you bring me to Tesco? Yeah, no problem. I'm so overwhelmed and overcommitted already. I, I just, I don't know what to do. They overcommit, overextend, and end up exhausted, burnt out, and depressed. They can even neglect themselves and their own families while they're pleasing other people. Are you a people pleaser? Do any of those resonate with you? What can you do about it as we finish up? Number one is this. Realize this, that people pleasing is actually idolatry. Strong word. People pleasing is idolatry. Remember the first two commandments? You will have no other God but me. You must not make yourself an idol of any kind. God saying you will have nobody before me, nobody more important than me. You will fear nobody more than you fear me, and you will not make anyone an idol. Now, when we think of idols, we think of golden calves and statues and that other religions go and worship in different places. That's not what an idol is. An idol is simply this. Anything or anyone that's equal or more important than God in our hearts and minds. Anything or anyone that's equal or more important than God in our hearts and our minds is an idol. It can be money, it can be your spouse, it could be your kids, it could be your job, it could be absolutely anything. But if anything takes that place of number one in your life that only God should have, he says that is an idol. And when you're more concerned with pleasing people than with pleasing God, that is idolatry. They have become an idol. Their opinion is more important than God's opinion. When a person's your idol, you end up compromising for them. You do things that you know are wrong to keep them happy. The classic cases with teenage girls where they, they do things with their boyfriend that they wouldn't do and that they know are wrong just to keep him around because they want to keep him happy. But as we get older, we have our own versions of that where we do things that we shouldn't do, we wouldn't do. Maybe in work, the boss asks us to do something, and we know it's a little bit shady. We know it's a little bit in the gray area, if not a bit dodgy, but we do it anyway because we want to keep them happy. It could be spending money you don't have and getting into debt so other people have a certain image of you. We read those stories, don't we? But these people who, who racked up tens of thousands in debt and they had all the fancy cars and the fancy house and it was all about impressing people, but they had absolutely nothing behind it. You know, it can even be overcommitting yourself to church so that people have a certain perception of you. Proverbs 29 says this in verse 25. Fear of man will prove to be a snare or a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. When you fear people, it's a trap. It's like a noose around your neck. It's, it's, it's like a, a, a hook in the mouth of a fish. It's a trap. It captures you. It kills you. It destroys you. Anyone or anything whose opinion is more, than God, more important than God's opinion is an idol in your life. And idols, there's only one thing you can do. And that is put them in their proper place, remove them, or they end up 
destroying you. Number two, and we're nearly done. Fearing God is the best way to stop fearing people. This is vital. This is key. The more you care about what God thinks of you, the less you care what other people think. One of my favorite verses in Galatians is this, where to the church in Galatia, Paul writes this in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 10. He says, am I now trying to, trying to win the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says, if I cared what other people thought, I couldn't be a Christian, is basically what he says. I'm not trying to win people's approval. I'm trying to win God's approval. And therefore, I am not bound by what people think. If people agree with me, that's okay. If they disagree with me, that's okay. As long as God is pleased. And I've noticed something in 30 years of being a Christian. The bigger God is, the smaller other people are. But the, the, the smaller your God is, the bigger other people are. And in today's culture, in the church, we have diminished God. We have reduced God to our own size. We have made God our best buddy, our best pal. We have taken away the holiness and the majesty and the awesomeness of God. And we need to recover that. We need to recover that God is not like us, just a little bit bigger but that God is holy, holy, holy. He's the awesome creator of heaven and earth. He, he, he has, has no rivals. He has no equal. There's nothing like him. There's no one like him. He's the omnipotent one. He's the uncreated one. That he is God and I am not. And when you put God in his proper place and his proper perspective, everything and everyone else takes theirs. You live for an audience of one. At the end of John 2, Jesus says, it says this about Jesus. But Jesus would not entrust himself to people, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Jesus knows what's in our hearts. Jesus knows the human heart is fickle. Jesus knows the human heart is full of uh, sinful desires and pride. And Jesus, therefore, wouldn't fully commit himself to any human because he knew what was in the human heart. He didn't need people's endorsements. He didn't need people's approval. One day they'd be shouting Hosanna, a few days later they'd be shouting crucify. One day they'd be crowding around him to get bread and fish, the next day they'd be crowding around the cross mocking him. He doesn't get caught up in the popularity or the criticism. It just doesn't affect him. His goal is not to be liked. Jesus was not popular. Now, I know at one stage crowds followed him, but he died a criminal's death on a cross. Even those closest to him forsook him. Jesus was not popular. He was well known, but he was not popular. His mission was not to be popular. His mission was to do the will of the Father. And he disappointed many people. He disappointed the religious leaders. His own family thought he was crazy. And even his own followers thought that he was there to start a political revolution. He danced to nobody's tune, but he had the smile of the Father. When you get God's place right in your life, when you see him as he is, everything else falls into place around that. And finally, as we close, remember who ultimately judges you. Remember ultimately who judges you. You see, we don't want people to judge us. Don't judge me. That's the whole thing today. How dare you judge me? Don't judge anyone. You're being so judgmental. We don't want people to judge us. We want them to like us, to think well of us, to tell others how great we are. We need to remember that ultimately there's only one judge and one opinion that matters. 
And that's the judgment of God. That's God's assessment. Romans 14.10 says this. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. 2 Corinthians 5. So we make it our goal to please him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may receive what is due to him for the things he has done while in the body, whether good or bad. And Luke 12, verse 5. Jesus says this, But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. I I turned 45 in, in August this year, and I know there's a lot of shock in the room. Um, you thought I was older. Um, I'm glad I married an older woman. It makes me feel young. Um, <laughs> you have no idea how much I'm going to suffer for that. Like, you have no idea. Second service, I get away with it when she's not here. Um, but, you know, life's short. You know, I'm 45. What's the best I'm going to do? Probably 90, if I'm doing well. So I'm more than halfway through my life probably right now. I don't want to get to the end of my life and have spent it pleasing people. I don't want to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and him to go, everybody thought you were nice, Craig. Nice. I don't want to be nice. The goal is not to be nice. The goal is to be Christ. <laughs> to belong to Christ. To be good, not to be nice. I was in a clothes shop the other day. It was a holy clothes shop. It's called All Saints. And... Uh, and I was talking to the guy and the girl behind the counter, and we were chatting for a while. And eventually the guy said, so what do you do? And I said, I'm a Church of Ireland minister. And, he said, and the girl just looked up and went, oh, lovely. <laughs> and I just went, oh, lovely, back to her. Because that's the way people perceive us in the church. We're just a bunch of nice people who gather around and have nice tea and coffee. And we just do our nice little things in our nice little churches. And we're just nice. We follow the Lion of Judah. He's got teeth and he's got fangs. We're not called to be nice. We're called to belong to Christ. We're called to be good. We're called to do the will of the Father. God will not say, were you nice? Did you keep everyone happy? Did everyone like you? Did you look good? How many Facebook friends did you have? It will be, who was Lord of your life? Who did you live for? Who did you serve? Who did you please? Was Christ the Lord of your life or was somebody else in charge? The bottom line in people pleasing is this, that we're seeking from people what only God can give us. We're looking people to give us the approval, the acceptance that only God can give us. Look at Isaiah 2.22. Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils, why hold them in esteem? In other words, they're all going to die anyway. They're going, I'm eternal, why don't you trust in me instead? We seek approval from people when God says, I already approve of you because of Christ. We seek acceptance from people when God says, I already accept you because of Christ. We seek esteem from people when God says, I esteem you. You're the apple of my eye. We seek love from people and God says, my love for you is unchangeable. We need to live for an audience of one. You know, 
when we finish here with it. Just in my own life. Because I, I, I generally think I'm fairly good at this. But even I have struggled with it. A few years ago, I wanted to learn Instagram. And so I, I started a page called Daily Prophetic. And um, it was only to learn Instagram. There was nothing deeply spiritual behind it. But I, I simply would ask God, God, what do you want to say to your people? And I, I would jot it down on Instagram. And, and I kind of thought, you know, three people might follow me. And next thing, it, it just it started taking off. And 5,000, 10,000, 20,000. But nobody... I didn't tell anybody I knew I was doing it. My name at that stage wasn't attached to it at all. You know why? I was afraid of what people would think of me. I was afraid that people would go, who does he think he is? I was afraid people would criticize me. 30,000, didn't tell anybody. But something bad happened. I, didn't, I forgot that Facebook and Instagram were linked together. And one day, somehow by accident, I clicked a button and all my Facebook friends got sent a link to my Instagram page. And I absolutely panicked. So any of them that followed me, I then deleted. I blocked them. That's how, because I, I didn't want them to know what I was doing because I was afraid of what people would think. I, I, most of my, the people were in America. I didn't care about strangers. Most of us don't care what strangers think. But we care about what the people who we know think. And this went on and on. And then I wrote the book, The Tension of Transition. Even though I only brought it out in paperback in November, it was written a year before that, but none of you hardly knew. I didn't tell anyone because I was afraid, who's he to write a book? Who does he think he is? And this went on and on. And I had this fear of what people would think. And then one day, two things happened that shifted all of it. I got an email from somebody I knew who had slipped through the net. Um, somebody I'd known from university days. A Christian person who I respected and looked up to. A girl of real integrity and leadership. And she emailed me one day. And I hadn't heard from her in years. And she had downloaded the ebook of The Tension of Transition. And she said, Craig, I just need to tell you something. We just found out this week that my, my sister has been living in a, an abusive marriage for 10 years. We're absolutely stunned. She came to us in tears last night. And we sat her down and we read two chapters of your book. And she's going tomorrow to the women's refuge and she's leaving him. And I was like, wow. And then an hour or two later, I got a message, a direct message. Somebody said, I was suicidal and you posted something on Instagram. And that pulled me off the edge. And that something shifted that day in me. And I began to think, imagine if I had capitulated to my fear of man. If I had capitulated to that desire to have everybody just say nice things about me. I can't, what God has put inside me would not have come out. And it's exactly the same with you. Every one of you has a purpose. God has put so much gold inside that tray, that clay treasure, that clay pot. There's treasure inside it. And if you capitulate to the crowd or to the critics, you will never fully express who God made you to be. But here's the the joyful thing. Jesus says, take up your cross. If you take up your cross and carry only the weight that Christ puts upon you, you will be able to fully be who God made you to be. You will be able to live fully for Christ, not caring what the crowd thinks, not caring what the critics think, 
but setting your face towards the purpose and destiny of God. That's what I'm going to do. That's what this church is going to do. And I pray that's what we're all going to do. We're not going to be people pleasers. We're going to live for an audience of one. Let's pray together.